Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the voice of the Mariners, Rick Riz. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we welcome a man that's been calling Major League Baseball games for four decades. He's the voice of the Seattle Mariners, and he's one of my favorite guys in the business. Not to mention, he's got the best hair in baseball. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Rick Riz. Rizzer, hey, thanks buddy. for coming on. How are you, buddy? <laughs> it's uh, nice to be with you on your podcast, man. It's always great to hear your voice. All right. How'd you like my intro? Did it do you it justice? Was awesome. <laughs> It was very, very good. Yeah, 39 years in the big leagues, 36 with the Mariners, in between three with the Detroit Tigers, eight years of the minor leagues. And, and Boney, it's flown by because I've had the wonderful opportunity. I've been blessed to, you know, do what I've loved to do ever since I was 12 years old and, and meet people like you. It's it's about the people in the business that make this job so much fun. You know, you and Ken Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez and all the great players that we had uh, down through the years with the Seattle Mariners and the guys that had met along the way, you know, be able to talk to Buck O'Neill and, and Hank Aaron and all the great players in Major League history. Uh, so I've been living my dream for a long time, and I know you have too, buddy. Rick, I, this before we go any further, we got to get to the nuts and bolts of Rick Riz. I want to talk about JB Baseball at Southern Illinois. <laughs> that's that's okay. what's important here <clears throat> all right i want to hear uh, all about you know, that all right well uh yeah i really ripped it around for about two and a half years on the jv team in college you know i played like all kids i played little league baseball and loved it uh, in the sandlot you remember the movie sandlot that was a story of my life we can get to that later on we had a sandlot behind my house and then played high school baseball and I wanted to go to Southern Illinois University because it was far enough away from home where I had to grow up and close enough where I could jump in a car and, you know, six hours be home. But it had a great school of communications. They had their own radio station, WSIU Radio. They had their own television station, WSIU TV. They had their own newspaper and drama department and speech and all that. And so it had everything I wanted. And I wanted to play baseball, too. So I decided to try to walk on and make the team. Of course, I was going to make the varsity. The varsity was, you know, they were really good. Itchy Jones, Richard Itchy Jones was my uh, college baseball coach. And he was one of the best coaches in the country. And they had a really good program when I was there. We finished third in the country in 1974. So they had a JV program, which uh, I don't know if any colleges have JV programs anymore, but I'm glad they did at the time. And I wanted to play baseball. You know, I could play in high school, and I thought, you know, I'd give it a shot. So um, my first day of school in college, I went to the athletic department, and I introduced myself to Itchy Jones, and Itchy happened to be in his office. He said, oh, where are you from? I said, I'm from the south side of Chicago. Where'd you go to high school? I said, no, high school. So Randy Rose, he knew my high school baseball coach because he recruited heavily, you know, on the south side of Chicago. So he said, you know, bring your spikes and your glove out to the ballpark tomorrow. We've got a few spots open on the JV team, and we'll see what happens. So uh, I'll never forget, Boney, I went to the arena. That's, that was our 
you know, where we played basketball and all the sports and the clubhouses were in there. And so I went in and changed. I walked out to the field. I saw, oh, man, there must have been about 100 or 200 guys out there playing catch. And I go, oh, man, I'm not going to make this team. So I turned around and went back to the arena, and I had my hand on the door, and I said, what are you doing? You know, uh, give yourself a chance. So I walked right back out into the field, and I started playing catch with the guys. And we started playing games, and guys would cut. Started playing more games. This is the fall, you know, when school started. And uh, more guys would cut, guys would quit. And I stayed with it. I got. I was the first one on the field. I was the last one to leave. I, I couldn't take enough ground balls or as much batting practice as I possibly could. And I just, you know, um, you know, worked really hard. I made the team. And I got my uniform and I slept in it that night. I took it back to my dorm room and I made the JV team. So I played a couple of years on the JV team my junior year. I was working out with the varsity and the JV team when I was offered uh, an opportunity to be a sports director, local ABC affiliate in Carbondale, Illinois. So I I sat down with coach Jones. I said, coach, I got this opportunity. I I don't know what my chances are making the varsity in my junior year. Howie Mitchell was the starting second baseman as a freshman. So this is his third year now. So he said, what have you come to school here for? And I said, well, I want to be a major league broadcaster. He said, go ahead and take the job. (laughs) So I took the job, and, and the rest is uh, and the rest is history. So uh, I became, you know, a radio broadcaster, and it, and it went from there. And here I am, you know, and now in the big leagues after 47 years uh, of broadcasting. So Rick, uh, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, Rick and, and myself, we've we've known each other for a long time. We've had a lot of good yeah. times. My 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 years up in Seattle, and I can't believe. After all these years, all the conversations we've had, you've never told me, Booney, I was a second baseman in college. Yeah, a second baseman, yeah. You I, never I told me any you. of this. Wouldn't you think I'd be interested in that? Or would I just would I make some uh, off the cuff comment and move on? Well, you were an outstanding <laughs> major league second baseman and I played on the J V team at college and I just didn't want that to be known. You know, I didn't want to go up to say, Hey, Booney. Uh, you know, you're turning the double play a little weird here. That's the way I did it in college, you know. <laughs> Don't talk but, but, you know, I would have loved that. I would have loved that. Uh, you would have loved it because you thought it would be funny, and it would have been funny. <laughs> but Dwayne Kuyper taught me how to turn the double play. Uh, really? He had just been drafted by the Cleveland Indians out of Southern Illinois University, and he came out during the fall after the season, his first or second minor league season, and worked out to, you know, get ready for the following year. And he taught me how to turn the double play. It was Dwayne Kuyper. We joke about that to this day. But, yeah, I was a second baseman in college. I didn't have anywhere near the ability of the Boone because uh, you were amazing. And you had one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen of any second baseman in history, in the history of the game in 2001 when you hit 337. Uh, 331 with 37 home runs and 141 RBIs. And, uh, you know, I was ripping around on the JV field, you know, 30 years before that. So I love it. <laughs> you are I love it. buddy. <laughs> so Blue Island, Illinois, Rick Riz as a kid. Um, yeah. You know, we all have our childhoods. We all, we all have our, the paths we take. We all have dreams when we're kids. Mine was always yeah. to, to be a baseball player since, since I can remember Obviously, you played up through college, but 
but really went on to do what you were passionate about and have been doing now for, for a long time. What was that like as a kid for you? I know, all right, because I had a brother who you know, and he yeah. was, he would sit, when we were kids, I remember him sitting in the living room. We're watching Harry Callis. <laughs> and Aaron, Aaron would sit there and emulate Harry Callis, and he'd call the Phillies games. He'd be in his Philly uniform doing the stances of all the people coming to the plate. And, and uh, it was amazing. As an older brother, I'd sit there, you know, and I kind of would laugh at him, and I'd clown him a little bit. But it was, as, as we got older, I'd watch him, and he really loved doing it. And he, he was actually pretty good at it, uh, knowing yeah. that, you know, baseball was his first love. What was your childhood like growing up, and, and what were your dreams as a little kid? Oh, that's a great question. I, get, I just got goosebumps, uh, you telling me the story about Aaron, because that's exactly, Booney, what I did in Chicago. Because uh, my mother was the biggest Cub fan in the world. So uh, every time I'd come home from school, she'd be watching the game. She had a little TV set in the kitchen. We had a TV set down in the basement. My dad fixed up the basement. This is the 1960s. And uh, I, I'd always watch the end of the game with her. I'd get home from school about 3 o'clock. And uh, she loved Ernie Banks and Ron Santo and Billy Williams. But then uh, I would listen to Jack Brickhouse doing the games on TV. Then I would listen to Lou Boudreaux and Lloyd Pettit and Jim West uh, and, and Jack Brickhouse, too, do the games on the radio when I was outside. And I thought, you know, man, that'd be a cool job. I'd love to do that. My first goal was to be like the moon. I wanted to be a major league player. I wanted to be the next Louis Aparicio because he was my hero growing up as a kid. We played in the sandlot. We picked who we were as players. We played, had a sandlot behind my house, you know, the movie sandlot. Exactly. That was my story, including the dog. And I'll get there maybe later on in our visit here. But what I would do, just like Aaron did, I would go downstairs for the Cub games and turn on the TV set, turn down the set and pretend I was Jack Brickhouse, and I would do the play-by-play. You know, and here the base is loaded, and here's Ernie Banks. And my mom goes, what are you doing down there, Ricky? I said, Mom, I'm busy. Ernie Banks is up with the bases loaded. Here's this swing of fly ball. Let's go. Banks on the track. So uh, that's what I did. And so when I was 12 years old, Rony, I wrote uh, Mr. Brickhouse a letter. And I wrote him a letter. I said, Dear Mr. Brickhouse, my name is Rick Briz. I live on the south side of Chicago here, and I watch your telecast and listen to you on the radio. And I want to be a major league broadcaster just like you. How do I do it? And he wrote me back this letter. And it was, you know, maybe a four or five little paragraph uh, letter saying what you would tell any 12-year-old kid. I wish I had it. I had it for years. But, you know, work hard, believe in yourself, and, you know, your dreams come true and all that. And so anyway, I had this letter for years. But so anyway, now I go to college and I play college baseball in JV team. I always remind people I was never on the varsity because you could look up the stats on the varsity and find out I wasn't there. I was on the JV team. And then I got a job in the minor leagues. Thank goodness for my, one of my best friends in the world, John Dietrich, who we went to college together. And the year before I graduated, he graduated and he got a job in the minor leagues as a uh, general manager for the Padres AA Farm Club. And when I graduated, he called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to start looking for a job in Chicago. He said, why don't you come down here to Alexandria, Louisiana? So I went down there just for a summer job, and that was 47 years ago. And he let me do three innings of play-by-play, and I was the clubhouse guy, and I'll get to that story maybe a little bit later on. 
But that's what I used to do. I, I would turn down the sound on the TV set like your little brother and do play-by-play. So now, you know, I spent eight years in the minor leagues. I get to the Mariners in 1983. And my first year in the big leagues, Dave Niehaus and I, who's the, one of the greatest broadcasters in the history of the game of baseball, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2008. You knew him very, very well. Sadly, passed away 11 years ago. He was the best thing that ever happened to me. Anyway, we went to Mesa to play the Cubs in the spring, early spring of 1983. And who happened to be at the ballpark was Jack Brickhouse. He had been retired for a couple of years. Harry Carey was doing the games with Milo Hamilton. And so Dave goes, uh, there's your hero. There's your hero, Jack Brickhouse. Go talk to him. Oh, he's, he was signing autographs, you know, behind home plate. And I said, no, no, I don't want to bother him. And then eventually he worked his way up to the press box. And Dave went, go talk to your hero. Go talk to him. So I went up to Mr. Brickhouse. And I introduced myself. So I said, Mr. Brickhouse, you don't remember this. But when I was 12 years old, I wrote you a letter. And you, you took the time to write me back. He said, oh, really? What, what are you doing here? I said, because of you. I'm the new announcer for the Seattle Mariners baseball team. I'm going to do today's game between the Mariners and the Cubs. And you wrote me this letter and inspired me to follow my dream. And he said, really? He said, I said, yes. And he gave me this big hug and everything. So uh, that's, that's what I did when I was a kid growing up playing in that sandlot, loving the game of baseball, falling in love with the game of baseball, wanting and trying to be the next Louis Aparicio. And I became uh, another, you know, Jack Brickhouse. So that's, that's how it worked out as a kid growing up on the south side of Chicago, funny. But I love baseball. I had the Cubs during the day. I had the White Sox during the night. People say, always say, oh, you're from Chicago. You're a Cub fan or White Sox fan? I tell them, I was both. I was six years old in 1959. And when I came home from school, there were the Cubs. There were the White Sox. And they both had Chicago on their jersey. I love both teams. And like I said, Louis Aparicio was my hero, Ernie Banks. So I grew up in a great world. I, I was fortunate. I had the greatest mom and dad in the world, like you, buddy, uh, who loved the game of baseball. My mother loved the game, you know, and would play catch with me and my brother. My dad would come home from work, you know, hard day at work, work in the factory, play ball with us in the sandlot. And he was a coach on my brother's little league team. And uh, so I had one of the greatest lives in the world growing up, you know, around the game of baseball. That's very cool. And, and to meet Brickhouse. Yeah. I mean, how, how awesome is that? You finally get to the big leagues, which you've been waiting for. And there's your, there's your hero who you wrote this letter to. Uh, it, pretty cool. It, kind of a storybook thing, but you yeah. went, you, you, you said, all right, after your, your baseball kind of ended, you decided you were going to go in a different direction. So you called the games at Southern Illinois. Then you met your buddy yeah. uh, Dietrich. You were in double yep. a from 75 to 80. And you ended up working for the Memphis Chicks in 78. But you mentioned that you were a clubby and you and you started off doing three innings in the three of the middle innings of the game. Yeah. So you kind of got you kind of got a taste of that minor league life and and what we all go through that grind. And and you're living, you know, you're finding a place to live and you're rubbing your nickels together (laughs) to to survive. And, And, you know, and when we get to the big leagues and, and we sign multi-year contracts and we travel the way we do in the big leagues, um, it's a pretty great life and it's a pretty first class life, but we all come from those days where it wasn't always like this. There weren't always, you know, five star spreads waiting for us after the game. There weren't (laughs) limousines and, and private planes. It was, Hey, let's see if we can 
Put another quart of oil in that car. See if it'll get us to the yard today. And who's got the best? Where are we going to eat that has the best deal going in town? Because that's what the minor leagues is like. And you yeah. got a taste of it, too. You you were kind of you, you weren't a player, but you were in that world. T- take me through your minor league in that grind. Oh, Booney. I mean, uh, I, have, I had so many great memories, but it was tough. Trust me. Uh, right after I graduated college from Southern Illinois, I uh, went and covered a tournament in Tulsa. and We lost, and then so I packed my little car. I had a 1971 Ford Maverick with everything I owned in it from college, and I drove home. And I got home about 1 o'clock in the morning, woke up my parents. I literally had to take a pebble and throw it on their bedroom window to wake them up. You know, I just drove all the way from Tulsa to Chicago. And uh, so we had a conversation in my kitchen for about an hour. And then my dad said, what are you going to do? You need a job. And, uh, you know, it came right to the point. I said, well, dad, I'm going to start, you know, looking for a job. And my mom goes, some guy from Louisiana called Rick, uh, Ricky about uh, yesterday. And he said, uh, for, as soon as you got home to call, I said, well, that's two o'clock in the morning. Now, after our conversation, she said, no, he's, he said to call as soon as you got home. It didn't matter what time. So I called my buddy, John Dietrich, who I went to college with. Now he's the general manager of the Alexandria Aces, the Padres double-A team in the, in the uh, Texas League. Little town, 41,000 people, right in the middle of Louisiana. And I called him up. I said, John, what's up? Oh, Rico. He called me Rico. That was my name in college for four years uh, because I got really tan. And getting, some people thought it was from Puerto Rico, so they called me Rico. And uh, he said, Rico, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go look for a job. He, now, this is early June, and the season is about two months old. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, my clubhouse guy just quit, and uh, I need a clubhouse guy. And I said, what's that? He said, I need somebody to wash the uniform, shine the shoes, get the players ready before the game and after the game. And he said, I'll let you do three innings of play-by-play, which didn't make his announcer very happy. Lynn Rollins, he was the announcer for the Alexander Aces. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take the job. Uh, he said he paid me 200 bucks a month, and I was going to live with two of the ballplayers. They were looking for a roommate. And so I, I said, can I spend two days with my mom and dad, and I'll drive down there. So I did. And I drove down there, and I got an apartment with two of the players, Mike Hefner and uh, Gene Delion. And Mike Hefner was an interesting guy. He said he grew up in Colorado. He said he saw Bigfoot and everything. But I made $200 a month. And I was the clubhouse guy, and, you know, early in the morning, I'd get up, take all the uniforms, the sweaty, dirty uniforms, put them in a shopping cart, push them across a gravel parking lot to my apartment complex, which was across the street into the laundromat there. We had like two or three washers, two or three dryers. And I would sit there for hours and do the laundry and then bring it back, hang up the laundry. The, the clubhouses, Booney, were two trailers down the right field line that were plumbed for toilets and showers. Those were our clubhouses. So I, I hang up all the laundry and get, you know, the team ready. And then I try to do a few notes before the ball game. The team would come about three o'clock in the afternoon, get ready for the ball game. Once the game started, went up to the booth and I did my three innings of play by play. I would do the fourth, fifth and sixth and then, you know, come back down after the ball game and get the guys ice, hot dogs, whatever. And then I would go to the concession stand because I made 200 bucks a month. And I would, the, the girls in the concession stand would give me all the leftover hot dogs. And I would just scarf down as many hot dogs as I could or bring 
few home for breakfast or for lunch the next day and heat them up or make macaroni and cheese and put some hot dogs in there. But that was my first year in baseball. And then we moved the franchise from Alexandria, Louisiana, because we just couldn't make a go there. It rained. It seemed like it rained every day at 4 o'clock. We had 17, 19 rainouts. And then we moved the team to Amarillo, Texas, and I went as the full-time broadcaster for the Amarillo Gold Sox. Still, we were Double A Farm Club for the Padres. So I was there for two years and then went to Memphis, Tennessee, got a job with the Expos double-A team in the in the Southern League in 1978, 79, and 80. Philippe Alou was our manager in 1978, and Billy Gardner the following year, Larry Bernard the following year. We had some great clubs there, too. We won a Texas League title with the Emerald of Gold Sox in 1976. Then I was on to um, in the International League with the Columbus Clippers, where I was the announcer for the Yankees triple-A team, and I made $2,000 a month, and I thought I was the richest guy in the world. And uh, we got like $20 a day meal money in Columbus. And I thought, man, I could buy meat. Whereas uh, we got $7.50 a day, you know, in the minor leagues in Amarillo and Memphis. But uh, I I rode the buses with those guys. I was with them every day for a two-and-a-half-hour bus ride from Memphis to Nashville or an 18-hour bus ride from Memphis to Orlando or all around the Texas League, the Southern League. But uh, I lived the same life that you did. And I loved it. Was it tough? It was tough, but we loved it. We had a passion for it. And and we survived that and thrived, and we eventually made it to the big leagues. And, I, and I've been blessed. I never took one second, not alone one day, one second for granted. I'm glad I lived that experience for eight years in the minor leagues because it really set a foundation for me in the big leagues and never complained about a late flight or anything like that. But uh, I, I really loved it, and I saw how tough it was to get to the big leagues that what you guys go through every day, because in the minor leagues, you're playing every day, you know, for five months. And hopefully we get a call to the big leagues. I saw the joy of players getting called up to AAA and to the big leagues. I saw the heartbreak and the disappointment of being sent down or released. You know, I saw guys cry and I'm thinking, my gosh, this is a tough business, but only the best of the best of the best make it to the big leagues. And I realized if I was going to make it, I'm going to have to work hard at it. And for some reason, I gave myself 10 years, and I made it in eight. Why I gave myself 10 years, I don't know, but it was one of the best decisions I've ever made, Tony. And uh, I was able to make it in 1983. So, yeah, it was a great life. It was fun. We had a blast in the minor leagues. We 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 shared our lives together in great moments and great conversations on the bus rides and at the apartment where we lived at and the clubhouses and the uh, and I'm, to this day, I'm still great friends with a number of the guys that uh, played on our clubs. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, the minor league experience, it's its something else. And and when you're young and you're hungry, uh, it seems like you just put your head down. And I, I remember, you know, uh, <clears throat> some similar stories to what you were talking about. It's just – and at the time, you don't look at it as I'm in the minor leagues and I'm struggling. You know, it's it, – money's yeah. tight it's like no i'm just here to play baseball because i'm going to get to the big yeah. ones one day and then one day you come back to the minor leagues and you remember you see those kids riding the buses and you know you know me i wouldn't be one to complain but we'd go we'd come back with the big club and and you know let's say play a, a minor league affiliate uh, an exhibition yeah. game which usually you know right. big league clubs do that to, to to create some revenue for their minor league affiliate and yeah, I remember I'd yeah. go back down to like a ball and I'd come back from it at bat and I'd go, I can't see. 
The backdrop's no good. When you're in the minor <laughs> leagues, man, it doesn't matter what's in the backdrop. You're just up there, see ball, and and, and exactly. knock the hell out of it, you know? But once you get to the big leagues and, and you live that life, you come to the minor – well, I can't play in this field. I can't see perfectly, you know? But uh, it makes yeah, you appreciate – it makes you appreciate where you came from and, and the struggle. It's it's rewarding because of the things you go through. Very cool story on 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 your and side of the ledger good. and what you were. It, it, it's a very similar path to a player. It's just oh, an announcer. Same, same path, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story is amazing. I mean, our bus caught on fire one time. You know, when I was with the Memphis Chicks and we were about two or three hours out of Atlanta, heading to Knoxville, and everybody's asleep. It's like three o'clock in the morning. And the back of our bus was in flames and everybody was sleeping. Here comes a state patrol officer on his megaphone in the car. Pull over your buses on fire. Pull over your buses on fire. Bully Baloo was sitting in front of me. And uh, the bus driver finally realized there was something wrong. And we all woke up. Man, you, we, uh, I saw about 30 guys go flying off that bus. And here's these flames. The, the engine had caught on fire. And and uh you got everybody's got, everybody's got a story everybody's got more than one story you probably have about 100 stories you know like that in the in the minor leagues but that's what makes you who you are and like i said builds that foundation i'll never forget those wonderful stories <laughs> all right so 83 you get your you finally you get your big opportunity and yeah. uh <laughs> tell me about the story before your mariner interview only Riz could do this. So Give me the, the cookies, Girl Scout the cookies. cookies. What, what, what's going on? Girl Scout. Well, uh, I'm going to make a long story long. Uh, this is, uh, I, 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 in a way, I have the Girl Scouts to thank for getting me to the big leagues. When I was in Columbus, Ohio, my last year in the minor leagues, my eighth year, was 1982, uh, with the Columbus Clippers, the Yankees AAA Farm Club. And uh, this, we had a, this catcher by the name of Bruce Robinson. And I don't know how he found out about a job opening with the Seattle Mariners, but he said, Rick, he said, a friend of mine told me that uh, there's going to be a job opening in with the Seattle Mariners because Kenny Wilson had left and uh, after was going to leave after the 1982 season. He said, why don't you send a resume there? Because I was sending resumes out to seven or eight different clubs, usually in Chicago, you know, New York, because I was with the Yankees organization. So I sent a resume out to Seattle, never thinking I'd hear back from him. And I didn't until uh, January of the following year. And uh, so Melody Tucker was the director of broadcasting. She called me up. She, she said, Rick, you're one of two finalists for the job. And, oh, my God, Boney, I was so scared. I, here's my opportunity to finally get to the big leagues after eight years. And she said, I'll let you know in the next few days. Uh, and, and, uh, George Argeris, the owner of the club wants to meet with you. He's a real estate developer down in Southern California, but he owned the Seattle Mariners. Well, we, we arranged uh, an appointment for me to fly to Santa Ana to go meet with Mr. Argeris. But the day before where the Girl Scouts, uh, cookie campaign started and to kick it off, they had a, a cookie eating contest at the local mall in Columbus, Ohio. And they had like eight, uh, radio and TV personalities being this cookie contest, cookie eating contest, in which I was one of the eight. So I went to this cookie eating contest the day before I was to fly out. And uh, I ate 33 cookies in three minutes, Booney. One of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. And I didn't even win. I finished in third place. I got a big Mrs. Fields cookie. So anyway, the next morning, I had to go to work. I was sports director at WBNS Radio. 
in Columbus. I had to get up at four o'clock every morning and be at the station, you know, at five o'clock on the air at six. And then I was going to fly out later in the day to fly to Southern California to meet with the owner of the Mariners. And about seven o'clock in the morning, I felt like I was having a heart attack. My chest was pounding. I had this tremendous pain. It wouldn't go away. So I called up the team physician, Doc Stevens. I said, Doc, you know, my chest is killing me. He says, well, come to the hospital right away. I'll check you out. I said, I can't. I got to get on, get to the airport later on and fly to Southern California for a job opportunity with the Mariners. He said, get to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and they put me on an EKG machine. They took a blood test and I couldn't leave because uh, supposedly I had to take like two or three blood tests a few hours apart to make sure I didn't have a heart attack. He said, I, he said, what'd you do last night? I said, I told him I was in the cookie eating contest. There are 33 cookies in three minutes. He said, you did what? And I said, yeah. And so he said, I think you stressed your sternum, but I can't let you go. So I had to call up Melody Tucker and explain to her what happened. I went to this cookie. I, I said, I'm going to miss my flight, Melody. I won't be able to see Mr. Idris. You know, and I called from a gurney with one of those blue smocks on, you know, with your backside hanging out on a gurney hooked up to an EKG machine because this was long before cell phones. And then they wheeled me out to the front desk there to make this phone call. So I explained to Melody Tucker, I said, Melody, I'm going to miss my appointment. She said, why? Cooking in contest, Girl Scouts, 33 cookies, three minutes. She said, call me back in half an hour. I'm going to call Mr. Rogers and see what we can do. So I called back in half an hour. She said, can you be there tomorrow? I said, I will be there tomorrow. I'm going to rip all these wires off me. I'll be there. So anyway, all I did was I stressed my sternum. I didn't have a heart attack, thank God. So the next day, I fly out to Southern California, and I go to Arnell Development Company. That was his business that he owned in Southern California. We sat there, and we talked for about, uh, about an hour, you know, about the minor leagues and broadcasting. And then Boney was at his desk. I'm sitting on the other side of his desk. And he pointed at me across the desk, and he pointed at me. Now, why did you miss your appointment yesterday? You know, kind of sternly, but joking. And I said, well, Mr. Rogers, the Girl Scouts had their kickoff for their cookie campaign, and then we had a, uh, we had a cookie contest. They had 33 cookies, and I stressed my sternum. They thought I had a heart attack, but they didn't. So we laughed about it for about five minutes. And then about five minutes went by, another five minutes went by, and Booney, he looked at me, and he reached his hand across the desk to shake my hand. He says, Rick, and I'll never forget these words as long as I live. He says, Rick, anybody willing to sacrifice his life for the Girl Scouts is my kind of guy. Welcome aboard. You got the job. So I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that's how I got the job, Booney. I interviewed with Mr. Argus, and he flew me off to Seattle instead of going to Columbus right away. And I met with Dave Niehaus. I met with the radio people at KVI Radio, where we had our flagship station at the time, and the TV station. I met Dave Niehaus for the first time, but Dan O'Brien, the GM of the ball club, and everybody in the front office. But I got the Girl Scouts to thank for getting me to the big leagues, Booney. How about that? Very cool. And, and in, in a weird way, it probably did help you because the, the story yeah. was so cool. He, it was probably an endearing story. <laughs> and he just thought, yeah. you know, this guy, he's, this is his dream. And very cool. Very cool. So you, you, yeah. so now you're the Mariner announcer and it, it lasted first stint with the Mariners is 83 to 92. 
And and that's where I wanted right. to get into, you know, a guy we all love and and legendary, uh, especially in Seattle, but in the in the industry of broadcasters, and that's Dave Niehaus. Yeah, yeah, David. David was amazing. Uh, he uh, he's responsible for getting me to Seattle. He's the one that listened to my cassette tape. You know, and he was very involved in who was going to be his next partner after Kenny Wilson left after the first six years of the franchise. And he was just amazing. He made me feel so comfortable, Boney. You know, you had your guy who took you under your wing when you were a young ball player in the minor leagues and then in the major leagues. He took me under his wing. We became very close friends, which really helped out. Uh, You know, I fell in love with his family. Uh, you know, he with mine, you know, my son was three years old the day we drove into Seattle in 1983. I watched his kids grow up, um, Matt and Andy and Greta, who I love dearly, you know, his daughter who now has three kids of her own, Marilyn Niehaus, his wife. Uh, and he, he made it just so comfortable. He taught me the ropes. He taught me that, you know, just because it may be a bad baseball game, it doesn't have to be a bad broadcast. And for years, Booney, before, you know, long before you got there, we had some lean years, but we always had Dave Niehaus and people would tune into the games. Our ratings were always great because of Dave Niehaus. And I learned right away, he was the reason he was so good on the radio, because he understood the game and he was a great storyteller. And that's what I try to do to this day. Tell stories, make you guys human. You know, tell funny stories about you, the, the funny things that you and I did. You know, one of Edgar's final days, on the road in Anaheim, you know, sitting outside the fire there, you know, and you and I were getting on each other. And Edgar says, hey, Booney, don't get on Rick. You know, he's having a better year than you are. And you were speechless for the first time in your life. You know, stories <laughs> like that. I don't know if you remember that night. Yeah, but, I do. Uh, that was one of the greatest nights of my life. But Dave Niehaus was just so wonderful. He made me so comfortable. And I got to tell you the story. My first day in the big leagues, we're playing the New York Yankees. Now, I spent eight years in the minor leagues, and here's Gaylord Perry pitching against Ryan Guidry in the kingdom. And I go, man, alive. You know, I'm, I'm not in the minor leagues anymore, you know. And I was so pumped up, and, and I did three innings of play-by-play. I did the third, the sixth, and the seventh. And Dave did, you know, the play-by-play, one, two, four, five, eight, nine. But I did color, you know. So I was so pumped up, and after every pitch, I'm jumping in there. So, hey, Gaylord throws the fastball in the outside corner, and then, Dave goes, here's the windup at the next pitch. We're going to miss strike two. Oh, man. And I kept talking way too much. I was so pumped up. And after the inning was over, true story, Dave Niehaus reached over, turned off my mic, and he said, you don't have to talk after every pitch. (laughs) I said, okay, all right. So I settled down. I relaxed. And from that time on, uh, it was just, Awesome. I can't thank him enough. And then I went away to Detroit for three years, and that didn't work out, trying to replace the legend there. David got me back, and thank God I didn't miss that 1995 season. But I got Dave Niehaus to thank for everything that I was able to accomplish in the big leagues here in Seattle, buddy. Yeah, and Dave, he's such a great guy. And and my second tenure in Seattle, you know, I came up with the Mariners in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, it it was funny because there's certain people that – 
and not that he made me nervous, but he was a he he was a stoic figure, you know. He was almost like a yeah. Lou type. He'd walk around and you know, I'm just this young kid, it's nineteen ninety-two. I just get called up. He's the voice of the Mariners. You know, I've been listening to him for years and and he's just kind of looking at me, sizing me up like all right, I've been hearing about this kid, and I wonder how good he's going to be. So he's, it was almost like, all right, I got to get Niehaus's approval, you know, because when he starts pumping me up, now I know I've arrived. But it was cool, mm-hmm. and and when I came back to Seattle, full circle in two thousand one, and and played my next five years there, I got to know Dave on a, on a different level, and uh, right. what a wonderful man, and yeah. like you mentioned, what a what a great family. Um, yeah. You mentioned you go to. Uh, <laughs> 92 to 94 and you said it you're replacing a legend in Ernie Harwell you're off to Detroit uh man yeah. that had to be tough you know filling those shoes uh just what were those three like three years like for you and were you thinking man I should have stayed with Dave yes yes I thought about that on opening day 1992 I'll never forget it uh in in uh late October of 1991 um, Doc Fankel, who was the, um, he was the, uh, head of broadcasting for the Detroit Tigers. And during that season, you know, Ernie had, had announced, or the Tigers had announced that that was going to be Ernie Harwell's final year as the broadcaster for the Tigers. And the, you know, what hit the fan because Ernie had been there for like 34 years and it was beloved there in Detroit, one of the hall of fame announcer. And the city of Detroit was up in arms, the whole state of Michigan was up in arms because Ernie announced he was going to leave. So anyway, in the ball club uh, was owned by Tom Monahan, who uh, had the Domino's pizza franchise and Bo Sembeckler was president of the ball club. So Doc Finkel told me during the course of the season, he said, I want you to apply for Ernie's job. And I said, no way, you know, I'm not going to come into this firestorm. This is during the 91 season and people were up in arms that Ernie was going to be leaving at the end of the year. So just for the heck of it, he said, uh, send us a resume. So I sent in a resume and a tape. I did it. And sure enough, at the end of the year, they called me up and Doc Frankel calls me up and says, Rick, we want you to come in for an interview with Bo Schembechler. And I went, Oh my gosh. So they, they had offered me doc. We, we had a secret meeting at Midway airport in Chicago. He flew from Detroit to Midway while we were playing the white Sox on the road in 91. And he said, uh, we're going to offer you this. We're going to offer you one year contract with a second year at our option. I go, oh, man, that doesn't sound good. <clears throat> if I'm going to try to replace the legend. But anyway, later I, I agreed to come for an interview. So I, I put together a proposal and I made about eight copies. And then I met with uh, Bo Schembechler, who was the president of the Detroit Tigers, Doc Fankel, Jim Long from WJR, Phil Boyce, who was the program director at the radio station. There was like three or four other people in there and myself in uh, Bo's office. And so um, we sat there and uh, Bo interviewed me for the longest time. He looked at my resume. And when I was in Columbus, I did Ohio State football for two years. And he said, oh, you were there in 81 and 82. He says, yeah, we beat you both years. I go, well, Bo, do you remember the 1981 season? Yeah. Remember you guys had a nine to seven lead and our Buckeyes drove down to about your five yard line? Yeah. Remember Schleister rolling to his right and Vaughn Brodnacks, our fullback, knocked down about three-year guys and Schleister dove in the end zone and the Buckeyes won. 
And he started pounding his desk. We should have won that game. We should. He's pounding his desk. I'm pissing off Bo Schembechler. It's awesome. I didn't care if I got the job or not. You know, I'd go back to Seattle and be with Dave. But anyway, we finished up the conversation. And uh, about two weeks later, it was my birthday, November 17th. Bo called me up 730 in the morning. He said, hey, Rick, this is Bo. I go, yeah. He said, what you doing? I said, I'm making my son breakfast here. You want some waffles? He said, no, I have breakfast. He's in Detroit. So I said, what's going on, Bo? He said, we want you to be our guy. And I went, oh, my goodness. So I accepted. I got the job. And I'll never forget opening day, Booney, because it was hard. Uh, my first broadcast, uh, we went to Sarasota to play the White Sox. And uh, it's the spring training of 1992. And I've got Joe Falls from the Detroit News standing behind me with a pad and paper, uh, a pad and a pencil. And I got a TV station in front of me with a microphone. And I'm going to be the new announcer for the Detroit Tigers. These are my first words that the fans in Detroit are going to hear in the state of Michigan. Spring training game, 1992. And I'm not kidding you. This is a true story. About 30 seconds before I go on the air, and I'm thinking, what am I going to say to honor Ernie Harwell and introduce myself and my new broadcast partner, Bob Rathman, joined me in the radio booth that year, too to replace Paul Carey, Ernie's old sidekick for 19 years. 30 seconds before I go in the air, the door bursts open, and here comes this guy with a baseball cap on, yelling and screaming at Bobby. Hey, Bobby, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Bobby, it's good to see you. Good luck. Hey, Bobby. And I go, who the hell is this guy? It's Dick Vitale. And I go, holy (laughs) Jesus, now I got 20 seconds before I go on the air, my first words. And I go, Bobby. Yeah, we, and he goes, Dick, 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 we're just getting ready to go on the air. We're getting ready to go on the air. Because uh, Bob Rathbun knew Dick Vitale because Bob Rathbun did a lot of college basketball and got to know Dick through the years, and he happened to be at the game in Florida and lived down there. And so I finally composed myself with about five seconds left. I said, hi, everybody. Welcome to Detroit Tigers baseball. And, we're, and I can't remember what I said, but I got through it, and then I finally met Dick Vitale. So that's my first day on the job. For opening day, 1992, uh, 50,000 people at uh, Tiger Stadium. It's like a, a holiday there, opening day. And as I drive up to the ballpark, it's a cool April afternoon game. And there's, uh, there's uh, you know, thousands of people outside the ballpark protesting because Ernie Harwell is no longer the radio announcer for the Detroit Tigers after 34 years. And they set up bleachers outside on Trumbull Avenue, Michigan and Trumbull to protest Ernie's not there. I walk into the ballpark. There's 10,000 fans with Ernie Harwell faces on a stick walking around and protesting the fact that Ernie's not there. I look at, I finally get up to the old, uh, the radio booth there at Tiger Stadium, which was right above the box seats there. You remember that old ballpark building? You played there many times. And I look out in the bleachers in center field. There's a huge sign. We want Ernie. And it stayed there all year long. Those fans in the center field bleachers brought it out to every game. And then I look up in the sky. Here is a, a biplane up there flying around with a banner behind it. Where's Ernie? You know, so that was my first day as the announcer for the Detroit Tigers during the regular season of uh, 1992. And I looked at Bob Rath and I said, Bobby, if we survive this, you know, it's all downhill after that. So we made it for three years. Uh, Mike Illich bought the team in 1992, August of 92. And he had a meeting with Bobby and myself and all his lawyers and everything. Can we bring Ernie back in 93? I said, of course we can. I loved Ernie. So we brought him back in 93 to hopefully pass the torch. And then he retired after that year. But in 
1994, a week before Christmas, is a strike. Uh, the season, as you know, ended on uh, August the 12th. Man, it was a gloomy day in Detroit. We're playing the Milwaukee Brewers. But in one week before Christmas, they let me go. Uh, and then they wouldn't let me go. That's a long story, too. They were going to say, you know, I was going to do pre- and post-game shows, but they just didn't want me to play by play. Anyway, I hired a lawyer to get me out of the contract, and Dave Niehaus got me back to Seattle. And it was actually Kevin Kremen's brother, who was a lawyer in Tulsa, that actually got me out of the contract because they were going to, I had one more year left of my contract in Detroit. Anyway, that's a long story too. But anyway, it was really difficult. It was a great learning experience. You wouldn't believe the stories that some of the guys wrote in the paper. I was so mad. This one writer, Charlie Vincent wrote that. I uh, said, there's a high ground ball and he was driving his car in the game. He almost drove off the road and Boney, I've been doing this for 47 years. I never said in my life, there's a high ground ball. There's a hard ground ball that maybe didn't enunciate right, but he made me look like a fool. And I was really ticked off. And Sparky Anderson was so great to me, Boney. And he was my mentor. And he, he kept me sane when, you know, things were going bad, you know, in the media and everything, because they, they wanted Ernie back. And uh, Sparky saw me one day in the clubhouse, and I was kind of ticked off after this particular article. He said, you all right? I said, no, I'm not all right, Sparky. You read that stuff in the paper? He said, get my office. And he talked to me for about half an hour, 45 minutes. And I'll never forget him saying, he said, Rick, are you a good announcer? I said, I think so. He said, do you think they would just hire anybody to replace Ernie Harwell? I said, no. And then he said a word that I can't repeat on radio or your broadcasting. He said, well, blank them. You know, meaning some of the writers who were writing these bad. And we laughed for about five minutes. He said, you okay? I said, I'm okay, Sparky. He was wonderful to me. On the flights, he would sit in the first row coach. And then after we took off, we'd level off and he'd light up his pipe. He'd light up his pipe, Bunny. You know, with get a hot cup of coffee and sit down next to me and we would talk. After every flight, it was awesome. We'd talk everything about life and about baseball. Before we knew it, we'd have Billy Consolo next to us, arguing with Kirk Gibson and Alan Trammell, and we'd be laughing, and Sparky would stir the pot, you know, with Billy and Gibby, and they would get out, and I'd go, and I would just sit there and watch this and laugh my butt off. i go, life is pretty doggone good. You know, even though it was difficult in Detroit, I did a great job there. I was proud of the job that I and Bob Rathbit did there, but they let me go. And fortunately, Dave Niehaus was there again for me. And uh, Chuck Armstrong and Randy Adamak, Kevin Kremen, they got me back. And thank God he didn't miss that 1995 season. Because that was the year that saved baseball in Seattle. And then the 2001 season where you were such a huge part of, you know, 116 wins really put us on the map. And that's why we're still here today, buddy. Yeah, that 95 season. Like you said, I mean, and, and, you know, I get on you all the time, Riz. Or what are we going to play the double again? And then <laughs> and I yeah, do the same the thing way. for Edgar. But, uh, you know, that that 01 season, too, what what an unbelievable year. And, and unless you lived through it with us, you, it really doesn't do it justice. I mean, it, we got to a point where we we're no. just kind of looking around and looking around at each other and going, do you realize how many games we're winning? <laughs> you know, I remember a reporter coming up to me and, and I had had round one with, with Lou in uh, my first time in Seattle. And yeah. then round two was the 2001 season. I remember maybe mid season reporters coming up. Booney, did you notice how Lou's really mellowing out in his old age? 
and, and I looked at him and I laughed and I said, I'll tell you what, mellow. you go, you go tell Lou, if he can't be mellow when he wins every day, well then, then you can never be mellow. I said, it has nothing to do with mellowed out. It has to do with what's he got to be upset about. We win two out of every three. <laughs> But uh, what a, what an awesome year you you were there you were there from well you've been there from ninety five to present and so you've seen a lot of stuff up in uh, the Seattle area I want to talk to you about some of your uh, your coworkers you got Blow and Simsy you worked yeah. with Bone yeah. and Dan Wilson and and Valley the Volcano Ron Henderson. you know and the late Dave Henderson uh, just tell me about yeah. the partners you've had through the years. Oh my goodness! Well, 1983, you know, of course, was Dave, and he was he was the greatest, you know, I've, I've ever worked with. But the partners that I worked with, you know, the former players, I started with Wes Stock, and he was a lot of fun, you know, an old time former pitcher for the Kansas City A's and the Oakland A's, and he had some great stories about Dick Williams and the A's back in the early days. And then I worked with uh, Nellie Bryles. Uh, who was a heck of a pitcher, you know, in the big leagues with the St. Louis Cardinals and the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. And when he was with uh, the Cardinals, they were in the World Series against the Boston Red Sox, and he hit Carl Yastrzemski in the leg and, and knocked Diaz out of the out of the ball game. So anyway, now fast forward to 1985, and Nelly's our color commentator, and he had to go down on the field to interview Jim Presley after ball game at Fenway Park. This is 1985. The game that he pitched in in the World Series was 1967. So anyway, they're getting ready to do the interview on the field at Fenway, and fans are yelling at Nelly, you suck, Bryles, you suck, you try to kill Yaz, you suck, Bryles. And Jimmy Presley is standing there watching the fans yell at Nelson Bryles in 1985 going, Nelly, what the heck's happened? He said, Jimmy, don't worry about it. They still haven't forgiven me for hitting Yaz in the 67 series. Hey, are you kidding me? So I love Nelly Bryles. Uh, he was great because of the stories that he told us, the, the life that he lived at that time in baseball in the 70s, you know, and everything. And then Joe Simpson was awesome. I worked with Joe for five years, and he was so funny. He was crazy on the air. We just laughed. Uh, uh, we did Elvis impersonations. We just We just had so much fun down through the years. And then we made a great decision to add – uh, a permanent fourth guy in the booth, former player. And we got uh, Dave Henderson, who was absolutely fabulous. David knew what was going to happen before it happened. And he would say the most wonderful things because he knew the game of baseball. He says, he says, Rick, one of the greatest plays in baseball is a four, three put out, you know, get a runner from second to third base. He was all about playing the game the right way, you know, getting the ball in the air, getting a runner home from third with less than two outs. And he taught me so much about the game of baseball. And then Jay Buhner was crazy, and we had so much fun with Jay. And then Dan Wilson, and and now Mike Blowers, who does an incredible job on TV, and he helps us out on radio at times. I just love sitting there. I did TV for 25 years, and now since Dave passed away, you know, the last 11 years I'm doing just radio. But Blow does a great job. And it's all because of their experience and you would be so great at it, too, uh, because you lived it. You, you could put the fan in the batter's box with you. You could put the fan out there at second base where you played, where you were in the middle of everything. And I remember playing in college, and not to bring up my college days, but I remember I was in the middle of everything. 
You know, I had to know where the outfield was, was doing, where the ball was hit, who was running. And, uh, you know, you put the fans there in that situation so they can just understand the game and get the feel of it and the drama, what's going to happen before it happens and explain why it happened or why it didn't happen. And so I was blessed to have to work with uh, some of the greatest, uh, you know, former players as analysts and broadcasters like Dave Nittinghouse, who taught me the ropes and uh, managers who taught me the game like Lou Pinala was with Lou for 10 years. And like I said, Philippe Lou taught me so much about the game in the minor leagues and Frank Verdi in Columbus and Dave Campbell and Bob Miller, you know, and Amarillo. And I'm, I've been so blessed and so fortunate to learn from these guys who actually played the game and played it very well and at a high level. Uh, it was really a joy to be with them all these years and spend time with guys like you. I love you, buddy. All right, we're going to do a little rapid fire, Riz. Okay. Uh, I've randomly picked a few players. I just want you to, to sum them up in a sentence or two. We're going to start with Lou Pinella. One of the smartest managers I've ever seen, passionate, honest, and to the point. Uh, Lou, I would sit in Lou's office every day to do the manager's show. Dave and I would alternate, but when it was my time to be in there, he would go over the lineup with John McLaren at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, putting together the lineup and say, okay, in the seventh inning, I'm going to do this. In the eighth inning, we could do that. Ninth inning, we're bringing this guy there. And sure enough, in the seventh inning, he did this. Eighth inning, he did that. And it was like I was the smartest broadcaster in the world because I heard Lou map out the game. Smart, uh, passionate, caring. He loved you guys. He, the only thing he wanted was you to show up on time and play hard. If he had a problem with you, he got you in the office and talked about, you know, what was going on right or wrong, but uh, he loved you guys. And so passionate. All he wanted to do was win. I love them. That's more than one word or one sentence. I'm sorry. <laughs> Big unit, <laughs> Randy Johnson. Oh my goodness. Snarly, uh, you know, passionate too. Uh, he pitched with a chip on his shoulder, but it made him who he was, you know, he just wanted to beat you. He had that, uh, you know, desire to compete on every pitch. Not he would not he would not take a pitch off. You wouldn't take an at bat off. Neither would Edgar. He never took a pitch off. And uh, I, I love desire, the grit, the anger that made him so great. And then toward the end of his career, he realized, you know, you know, he needed to enjoy it a little bit more. But he was one of the greatest pitchers I've ever seen. Jay Buhner. Jay Buhner. Oh, my gosh. Uh, a rock. You know, uh, he was he was the a pillar of our ball club. The strength, he played so hard. Uh, he, he, you know, he played every day and he played the game, you know, the right way. He left everything on the field. All he wanted to do was win every night. All he wanted to do was perform you know, for the fans, and he left it all on the field. And a great guy, a great friend. Uh, I've, I've got a handful of guys who made me feel a part of the organization, and he was one of them, Norm Charlton, you, uh, Dan Wilson, and Junior, and a few other guys. But he was, he was a, a dear friend and a great ball player and, you know, truly a member of the Mariners Hall of Fame. Ichiro. 
wow, uh, amazing at putting the bat on the ball, you know, and making contact. Uh, how he was able to move forward with a swing but keep his hands back, and he was a hit master. Uh, he, he could hit the ball out of the ballpark 40 times a year if he wanted to, but his job was to get on base. Uh, he knew uh, how to be in uh, what that leadoff role took, and uh, he took it to a whole new level. Uh, he was he was speed. He was uh, grace. And for a little guy, man, he had an accurate, strong arm in right field. One of the best arms I've ever seen along with Jay Buhner. Loved watching him play. He was exciting. Every time he put the ball on the ground, he had a chance to get an infield base hit, and most times he did. Guy that's been the, uh, kind of a constant for the Mariners over the last decade, Kyle Seeger. Steady, consistent, plays every day. Uh, he's got a 210-game consecutive game streak. Uh, put his name in the lineup, wind him up at the start of the year, and let him go. And you know what you're going to get. You're going to get great defense, gold glove defense uh, at third base. He's going to grind out at bats. At the end of the year, he's going to have his doubles. He's going to have – he's going to drive in runs. He's going to have his share of, you know, 20, 25 home runs during the course of the year and a great teammate. Uh, uh, And you take a look uh, at all the leaders in the Mariners organization – He's right there at number four. He's behind Griffey. He's behind Edgar. He's behind uh, Buner. And there's Kyle Seeger right there. And that says so much about this kid who's played every game of his career in a Mariners uniform. Solid, dependable, and, and a great teammate and a great friend, too. Edgar Martinez. Best, best hitter I've ever seen. Edgar was intelligent times 10. He knew what the pitcher was going to throw him before the pitcher knew what he was going to throw to him. And that's what made him so great. He did all the little things right. Um, He hit his share of home runs, but all he wanted to do was hit the ball hard. Um, He's a Hall of Famer, and he was a Hall of Famer as soon as I saw him. He was a Hall of Famer the day he walked off the field in uh, 2004, his final year in the big leagues. I don't know why it took the writers so long to understand that. I guess they had to look at the numbers. I didn't. I saw a Hall of Fame player. I saw a Hall of Fame person. Uh, when he hit that double, he knew that Jack Badal was going to throw him the forkball because in the ninth inning of that game, he struck him out with a forkball. In the 11th inning, he took a fastball pretty much down the middle of the plate, didn't swing at it. And I went, Poppy, what's going on? You know, but Dave was doing the play-by-play. I'm just thinking to myself, but here comes the fork ball. Nice, quick swing. Didn't try to hit it out of the ballpark, but it was the biggest hit in our history. The double that scored Joey Corey from third, junior all the way from first base. And it was the hit that saved baseball in Seattle. Best hitter I've ever, ever seen, Booney. And here's the best player I've ever had as a teammate. We'll finish up with Ken Griffey, Jr., Best player I've ever seen in baseball. The best. You know, Junior could do it all, and he did it with a joy in his heart like a little leaguer. He loved the game of baseball, and he, that's the way he played it. Turned his cap backwards. Some guys didn't like that on other teams. But he reminded us what baseball should be. Fun. You know, and he had so much ability. Junior's problem was that he made the game look so easy. And it, it's not. 
you know, he got his work in long before people would show up and then he'd walk around and stretch and, you know, he's not doing anything. He got his work in. He was ready before every ball game. His athleticism, he gave me some of the biggest thrills I've ever watched in Major League Baseball or broadcast, you know, the catch in left center field at Yankee Stadium, robbing Jesse Barkley. Love would have been his third home run of that game. Uh, his dad and him playing in the same game late August of 1990, two weeks later, father and son hitting back-to-back home runs off of Kirk McCaskill in Anaheim. Uh, truly one of the all-time greats in the game of baseball and the best player I've ever seen. Ken Griffey Jr. and a dear friend. He called me up the other day. We talked for an hour on the phone. Um, it was a joy to be around him because he played the game with so much joy. And he reminded us every day what this game should be. Fun. Holy smoke. Where'd it come from, Riz? One of your, one of your lines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I just came up with that. I've heard the Holy Toledo. You know, uh, Holy Cow from Harry Carey. And uh, I thought, you know, holy smokes. I used to say it when I was a kid, holy smokes. And then I just carried into my broadcasting days in the minor leagues. And uh, I finally said, you know, it's natural. It it feels good when I say it, holy smokes. And then, you know, my home run call came my second year in the minor leagues when I was in Amarillo, Texas. You know, like like now we go on these caravans around all these cities around the Northwest with players, and we talk with our affiliate radio stations. We bring the players with us. We have all these nice get-togethers with fans. Well, in 1977, 1976, uh, the Texas Rangers came to Amarillo. I'm with the Amarillo Gold Sox. And Dick Reisenhoover was the longtime announcer for the Texas Rangers, and he came up with a number of players on a caravan to Amarillo, and he and I sat together at this luncheon after this luncheon and sat with me and really encouraged me and talked to me about my minor league career. I was just starting out. It was my second year in the minor leagues. And he encouraged me, he said, Brick, hang in there. And, uh, and, and I did. And so Mr. Reisner sadly, Booney, passed away the following year from cancer. His home run call was goodbye, Mr. Spalding. And so to honor Dick Reisenhover, I took that and I just went goodbye baseball. So whenever you hit those two home runs against the White Sox and Cammy was hitting four, you know, I'm going goodbye baseball. So that's been my home run call to honor Dick Reisenhoover, who passed away as an announcer for the Rangers back in 1977, because he took the time to sit with me after a luncheon in Amarillo, Texas, and encourage a young broadcaster to make me believe that I could get to the big leagues. And because of people like that and Jack Brickhouse and many other people, my mom and dad who supported me, uh, you know, I was able to, I'm able to live the life that I dreamt of as a 12 year old kid. And you know, my, my favorite one that you say, Rick, it's the roof is wide open. <laughs> <laughs> we have a roof booty. The roof is wide open, man, on a beautiful day. Cause as you know, our days here in the spring and summer on a beautiful day, you can't beat it anywhere in baseball. I, I love San Diego and I know you spent a lot of time there, but. It's beautiful up here in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, flat, you know, but uh, I love it up here. I got a mountain half an hour away from me where I can go ski if I want to. I haven't done that in years. 
but I got mountains on either side of me, and I love this Northwest. It's great. The organization has been wonderful to me, the fans, and and now we have a retractable roof where we play every day because we're a regional club, as you know. We got a rely on fans coming over from Yakima and Tri Cities or Walla Walla, and knowing that we're going to play that night so they can come here and stay in a hotel and support our local businesses, but. The roof is wide open. So got <laughs> <baseball>. <laughs> All right, let's uh, uh, let's talk about your charity, uh, Rick's Toys for Kids, and and I oh, believe it was started with you and, and the late Dave Henderson. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hendrew and I, after the ball games in 1995, as you know, we'd uh, walk over to or drive over to Pioneer Square after ball game after playing in the Kingdom, and we'd go to Swanee's and go have a few cold beers, you know, after the ball game. Or we'd go over to McCoy's Firehouse. Those were our two favorite stops. And one night after ball game, uh, we went over to McCoy's Firehouse, and David and I are sitting there at the pool having a beer. And I, I was watching TV. There was a little TV behind the bar, and there was a news report about the homeless situation in King County. And if you spent any time in Pioneer Square, which you did, you know, you, you saw a lot of people that were down under luck and, homeless there in Pioneer Square. And this report, particular report said there were 8,316 that they, homeless people that they could count in King County. And uh, so I looked at Hendu and I said, wow, 8,316 that they can count. I said, I wonder how many are kids? And Hendu said, I don't know. I said, Hendu, there's something I always want to do. I said, let's get the guys together. You know, Edgar Martinez and Dan Wilson and Jay Buner and Johnny Moses and Omar Vizquel and Aaron Seeley, who lived there during the offseason, Billy Hasselman, uh, Julio Cruz, who lived there during the offseason. I said, let's get the guys together. We'll pull our own money. I'll go find these kids, and let's buy them toys at Christmas time. This is late September when we're making that incredible run. I said, let's let's get together, and uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll buy toys for these kids at Christmas time. So that's what we did. We had dinner at the uh, this uh, uh, restaurant in Issaquah. And I said, fellas, everybody was there with their wives. I said, just write a check, you know, write whatever you want. You know, some guys donated $500, some guys $1,000. And we, I, we walked out of there with $18,000 amongst the 12 guys, the original 12, uh, me and Hendu and the other 10 guys. And so, okay, okay now I got to find these kids. So I went to a buddy of mine who was running the First Avenue Service Center, which is a homeless shelter in downtown Seattle. His name is Terry. I said, Terry, I've got some money here and I want to buy you know, your kids' toys at Christmas time. How many kids do you have here? I said, well, in and out, we have about 30 or 40, maybe around during the holiday season. But the Harborview Medical Center has a Christmas party for homeless kids that they take care of during the year. And Broadview Women's Shelter has about 60, 70 kids over there with their moms. So I contacted those two agencies, and I said, I've got this money. I want to buy toys for your kids. So we did. That first year, we bought with our $18,000, we bought toys for about maybe 350 or 400 kids. Well, four years later, Birch Fazio from the RBI club called me up and said, Rick, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, me and the guys, you know, we just raise our own money. We buy toys for homeless kids. So they had a little auction in December and where they raised a few thousand dollars. So we started doing an auction. I gathered up signed baseballs, bats and jerseys, caps and things like that and other things. And this auction really grew, Boney, and we've been doing it now for 25 years. And long story short, from that first year of raising $18,000, working with three homeless agencies and buying toys for about three or 400 kids, 
at the auction we had two years ago, because we had a virtual auction last year, we raised over $700,000. And we now work with over 30 different homeless agencies in and around King County up here in the Northwest. And we bought toys for over 12,000 homeless kids. We also now do six $5,000 Dave Henderson scholarships. So Toys for Kids has really grown. We have a website. If folks want to go to it and look at what we do or donate, it's rickstoysforkids.org. And we're going to continue it as long as I'm alive and because these kids and the moms need our help. So it's really been a blessing. And I've had so much help from, you know, Jay Buner when he was here and Edgar and Dan Wilson and, and all the guys. It's really been rewarding. And uh, Dave Henderson and I really started something special over a cold beer and a news report about uh, the homeless situation here in King County. And we're just trying our best to help out these kids, Booney and their moms. It's been, it's been unbelievable. That's awesome. Rick Riz, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And, and uh, no, you know, no. I've always admired about you. It seems like, and we all go through tough times and we don't always have the best day, but I'll tell you, you came to the ballpark, you always had a smile on your face and it was like, Riz is never having a bad day, even though, <laughs> like like all of us, of course you did. Uh, you've always yeah. represented the Mariners with with class and dignity, and you've done it for a lot of years, and, and I, I appreciate it a lot. What we do here on the Boone Podcast at the end is we get a question of the fan from the fans, and who asked that question is the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy. Dano. Gentlemen, how are you? Oh, that voice. Hey, Dan, I'm doing fine, buddy. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing splendid. I actually have two questions for you, okay? Two questions. This right. one, the first one comes from Lee in Seattle, and he wants to know this question. Rick, bottom of the ninth, down by one, bases loaded, two outs. Which all-time Mariner would you want to see walk up to the plate? Brett Boone. Brett Boone. <laughs> Well, besides Booney, uh, I would I would want Edgar Martinez because I would know that he was going to hit the ball and put hit the ball hard and put the ball in play. Uh, I knew something good was going to happen when he stepped up in 1995 and to win the ball game, to win the series, the walk off double. But he'd tell you his best game was in Game Four. We were down five to nothing to the Yankees, and if we lose that game, we're done. Uh, Scott Kamenicki's pitching for the Yankees, and Edgar hits a three-run home run, and we're back in the ball game, five to three. Then the game is tied at six-six, and he hits a grand slam, and the ball just poops off that blue tarpet there in straightaway center field, and we end up winning the ball game, eleven to eight. And then here comes game number five in extra innings, and he wins the ball game with a two-run double down the left field line. So if I had to pick one guy besides Brett Boone, I would go with uh, Poppy uh, Edgar Martinez. When Brett was asking you for one word and one sentences on certain people, can you give me one on Brett Boone? Oh, the Boone. There were there was two guys there inside that that man. There was there was Brett Boone, the ball player, and then there was the Boone. And the Boone was this hilarious guy who made everybody feel good and made everybody feel happy. Every time I walked in the clubhouse, his locker was way down at the other end, and I'd walk in on the other end. And I would hear, hey, Riz, and he'd get on me, and I would get on him, and and, uh, he was fun. He was baseball history, uh, 
family guy, you know, in 2004, I think you became a new daddy. The twins were born, what, in 2004, Booney? Uh, yep. he, he cared. Caring, caring, compassionate, and just a, one great ball player who just wanted to win. And he figured things out at an early age to become the great player that he was. But uh, uh, crazy fun. Uh, didn't take himself seriously, but he made everybody around him happy and enjoy the game of baseball. But when it came time to get a base hit, came time to get a, make a big play at second base, he was always there. And uh, I'll even remember with two strikes, which guys don't do anymore, he would go into a different stance. Remember, Booney, you would kind of angle yourself to say, I'm going to hit that ball to right field. I don't care if you know it or, or not. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. But he was uh, he was just a great friend and a great ball player, and I loved him dearly. Still do. And finally, seeing that I myself am sitting right now in the south side of Chicago, I got to ask yeah. you this real question. Do you mm-hmm. prefer your pizza thin crust or deep dish? Well, as I got older, Dan, uh, I'm a thin crust guy now. I used to be a, you know, deep dish pizza, man. One slice kind of fills you up, two would you, you blow up, but it was so delicious. But I'm, I'm a thin crust guy right now with good Italian sausage and uh, a, a nice thick layer of, uh, of pizza sauce. And, uh, you know, oh, my gosh, some Parmesan cheese on that thing. And I'm in I'm in heaven, man. But I'm a thin crust guy right now. What about you, Boney? You thick crust or thin crust? I'm I'm a thin crust guy. Come on, Riz. I grew up in Jersey. Thin crust, okay. thin crust. I'm, I'm a Jersey right. Philly guy. Me too. And Me too. Uh, yeah, I, I got to go with the thin crust. I like it all. If it's pizza, I like it all. I don't I, I don't hate on any kind of pizza. You want a thin crust, and you want a thin crust, and I'm down with both. All right, Mister hey, Riz. I got I I got a question for Brett. Go. Can I ask yes. him a question? Yeah, please. Okay, 2002, uh, one of the greatest games I've ever seen in my life. Uh, we're in Chicago, and it's May the 2nd, and we're playing the White Sox. There's Ichiro, there's Booney, there's Cami, Oli, Ruben Sierra, Carlos Guillen, Mark McLemore, Ben Davis, Jeff Cirilla. That's our starting lineup. And John Rauch is pitching the starter for the White Sox. And the Mariners scored 10 runs in the first inning and win the ball game 15 to 4. One of the greatest innings I've ever seen in my life. Brett Boone, Mr. Boone, and Mike Cameron hit back to back home runs in the first inning. In the first inning. Mike Cameron goes on to hit two more home runs, hits four home runs in the game to tie a major league record. And then later on in the game in the ninth inning, almost hits one out to right field. Boney, you hit a home run in front of Cammy to right field. Again, you come up with a man on each row, and you hit another opposite field home run. And then Cammy hits one behind you. I just was wondering what was going through your mind when you saw Cammy do what you just did and to put up 10 runs in that top of the first inning. What was that like? Well, I never... I'd never seen an inning like that. And, you know, I go deep, Cammy goes deep. Ah, it's fun, you know, back to back. We'd done it yeah. before. Uh, you know, a, a great day, but nevertheless, not, not groundbreaking, you know, not earth-shattering news. I come up, I go deep again, 
and and I cross home plate and Cammy's kind of giving me that look and you know Cammy his personality like damn yeah. boom <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I cross home plate he goes deep now yeah. he comes back into the dugout and we're looking at each other like we know we just did something that I think nobody's ever done before and yeah. uh, I I remember I go I go on to I punch out my next two at bats I go strikeout strikeout yeah. Cammy goes deep. Deep. Then uh, I remember what you're talking about. The uh, his last at bat, his fifth at bat. I ended up walking, and uh, yeah. Cammy gets to. I'll remember it like it was yesterday. Paul Canerico's on first, and it's a three zero count. And you know, in a blowout game, you don't swing three zero. But I turned to Paulie and I said, and Cammy had four at the time. As everybody knows, nobody's ever hit five home runs in a game. Nobody. And I turned to Paul Canerico. I said, Paulie. If there's ever an exception to swinging 3-0 in a blowout, it's right here. And he looked at me and goes, I agree. Which basically was conceding to me that if Cameron swings 3-0 in this 15-4 game, whatever it was, and hits a home run for his fifth, uh, there's not going to be any bad blood between us. And But I I always knew, you know, I knew Cammy. Cammy's a – he's a – he's a purist. He's a baseball purist. And I knew even though it was that – exception time he was he was going to take that 3-0 pitch and of course there's a 3-0 fastball down the middle he took it like like he's supposed yeah. to he he swings at the 3-1 pitch fouls it straight back and and then yeah. he hits that 3-2 pitch to the wall i knew it off the bat because you know i can tell when you hit a ball and he hit it and i said damn it that ain't going out but but it's close yeah. it's going to get the fans excited and sure enough it yeah. went to the warning track I, I still kid him today, Riz, you know, because what, it seems like once a year the internet will or, or Twitter or something will pop up with this day in, in, in uh, baseball history and, and Cameron goes on to hit the four homers. I always tell him, I said, Cammy, the older we get, you know, one day I'm going to switch it around on you. And somehow Booney hit the four homers. And he laughs about that. But, <laughs> but the, the irony of that is Lou had switched up the lineup that day Edgar wasn't playing Cammy never hit no. uh, that low in the lineup I never hit second in the lineup for some reason Lou hit me second and Cammy third yeah. that day and it, it yeah. basically said you couldn't get any worse because we were both scuffling and uh you know obviously we came out of it that day but what what a cool day and, and I remember hitting too how excited I was and by the end of the day I was kind of like wow I thought I had a good day and Compared to what he just did, you know, mine was yeah. mine was chump change, but uh, yeah, just one you of had the many. Same amount of RBIs. Many... You had four. You had four RBIs. You had four <laughs> I did. RBIs. I did. I just right. I just took care of him in a different way. But uh, now, one of the one of the definitely one of the fond memories. Uh, and I got a lot of them. Risk my my life up there in Seattle, but oh, that's definitely yeah. one of those special special days. Oh, and by the way, I'm coming to see you in a couple weeks. So Can't I'm, I'm going to invade your booth. I think I'm coming up on uh, July 10th, July 10th. So I'm looking forward awesome. to seeing you guys. I haven't been up there in a couple of years. All right. We'll tell some more lies. I mean, tell some more stories, uh, you know, on the radio when you get here. So the fans can uh, enjoy it up here in the Pacific Northwest, buddy, because you're chock full of stories, fun stories. And we'll talk about Edgar and uh, everybody else and your career and, I appreciate everything that you did in the Mariners uniform, but especially the person who you were, how you treated me and everybody else. Bunny, I can't thank you enough, buddy. Love you. You got it, Riz. Thanks. You're welcome, buddy. Thank you for 
allow me to be your guest and share some stories. Take care, buddy. You got it. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know what time it is. Uh, mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time. And we start with Ronnie and Hawthorne. Brett, have you ever voted for the All-Star game? Man, that's that's kind of a vague question. Uh, we have as a player, we have a we have a player vote. So, yeah, I've definitely done that. But as as a kid growing up and this is back when they had the ballots, this is before the Internet and, uh, you know, technology where we could just get on our computer and vote as, you know, however they do it these days. We used to get to the ballpark and this is my when my dad was in Philly playing for the Phillies and man, I'd, I'd get as many ballots as I could. And I'd sit there with my pencil and I'd poke holes through these, through these ballots and try to get pops to the, to the all-star game. So as a kid, it's some, it's some real fun memories. Yes. I voted a lot. Wonderful. All right. This one comes from Pete in Sarasota. Brett, what golf clubs do you play with? Right now, I have Miori's, they're called. M-I-U-R, I think, A-S. They're a Japanese club. They're, they're a great club. Uh, but I've had them for about 10 years, and I just went out and got fitted at the uh, Cobra Center. So I'm waiting any day now. I should have my new clubs. I'm excited about them. Uh, they're a little more forgiving than the, the irons I have now or blades. These are a little more forgiving, so I got the Cobras coming. I'll keep you posted. All right. That's going to do it for the Bread Food Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director and producer of this year Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the Boone Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content all handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Moon Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.